Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, you should. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Decode DC, All In With Chris Hayes, Counterspin, The Next System Project, The Black Agenda Report, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, The F Word with Laura Flanders, The Benjamin Dixon Show, and our activism for today is from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. In Baltimore, Freddie Gray. In Ferguson, Michael Brown. In Staten Island, Eric Garner. And in many other places, poor black men and boys have died in confrontations with police. My guest on Decode DC today says the social unrest we've seen in some of these places shouldn't be shocking to anyone. It is absolutely predictable. What we're seeing right now when we look at a Ferguson or we look at, a, at at Baltimore in this moment, we have to remind ourselves that this is a screenshot at the end of a very long-running movie that is still not over. This is Isabel Wilkerson. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. She spent 15 years researching and writing a book that's now among the most important ethnographies of the 20th century American experience. It's the story of the mass migration of African Americans out of the South. Wilkerson's book is called The Warmth of Other Sons, the epic story of America's great migration. Its name, The Warmth of Other Sons, comes from this poem she reads from Richard Wright's coming-of-age novel, Black Boy. I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil, to see if it could grow differently if it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. The story of the Great Migration is this. Between World War I and through the Civil Rights era, some six million African Americans headed north. Families sought lives and opportunities they thought would be more readily available outside the grip of the Jim Crow South's rigid caste system. But it wasn't that simple, says Wilkerson. We still live with the after effects of the assumptions and stereotypes uh, and, the, and the structural inequalities that grew out of that era. Wilkerson's book describes the Great Migration through the eyes and experiences of three people. They each fled the South for different reasons, one to seek professional work or just any opportunity. One stole away under the threat of being lynched. Their stories are beautiful and horrible and jaw-dropping. But what really smacks you in the face as a reader is what they found in the North, As they and millions of black people like them began to populate cities from Los Angeles to Chicago to New York, they ran up against obstacles that may have been less overt than in the South, but ultimately they were equally as devastating. They found 
in some ways some of the same resistance that uh, a permutation, you might say, a mutation of the resistance and hostility that they'd experienced in the South, which is, in a way, it was as if they were moving from one place to another only to find that which they had sought to flee, which is just astounding when you think about it. Black people could only get certain kinds of jobs. They were paid much less. Their rents were higher. They were denied mortgages. And all of this was done systematically, legally, through government institutions. In some ways, the people were quarantined into these small, these tightly packed, overcrowded, uh, worst neighborhoods in every city that, that, that they arrived in. We all, to this day, can identify where those places that they were consigned to live were because every city in our country still has has these pockets that are there where the poorest people live to this day. This is all uh, the after fact, the aftermath of the response to their arrival. The people who'd left seeking a better life were forced to scrabble at the bottom, eking out a living, treated by communities and city leaders as a nuisance at best. The rare African-American family that did scratch their way one rung up the ladder faced horrible consequences, says Wilkerson. When they managed to do that and cross all those barriers, they were met with tremendous violence. There were bombings, fire bombings of their homes. There were restrictive covenants that meant that white homeowners who, even if they wanted to sell to black homeowners, were prohibited as well. So there were multiple layers of resistance and, and obstacles by law that kept, and kept African Americans quarantined and created the ghettos as we know them today. Pick any American city and you can still see exactly where black people were penned up and hemmed in. Because those are still the hardest neighborhoods with the lowest incomes, the least number of homeowners, highest unemployment. The North's reaction to the Great Migration has had a cascading legacy, says Wilkerson, systematically holding back families generation after generation. Those children and grandchildren and now great-grandchildren have suffered uh, cumulatively over the generations as other Americans have been able to move forward. So you can see that as one group begins to move forward, equity and ownership and profit on house after house after house over the generations, African-Americans were held back by law from being able to participate in the fruits of their hard work. And so we now see generations later the the effects, the aftermath of what had been government policy. Now, if you didn't really know this story, you are not alone. Wilkerson says the one thing she hears from readers over and over again, whites, blacks, academics, everyone, is... I had no idea. The people themselves the uh, of this great migration were not talking about it. It's not taught in schools. It's not something that is, you know, connecting the dots between this experience, this major sea change in our country's demographics and history to what's going on now. That connection is not often made, and so people don't think of that uh, uh, upon, you know, first seeing the news. But then when you put it all together, suddenly... Everything begins to make sense, and you can see exactly how and why we got to where we are. 
Baltimore, like so many other American cities, has a legacy of segregation. And it didn't become segregated by accident. It was designed that way. A century of housing policy, from segregation laws to the subprime mortgage crisis, has divided Baltimore along racial lines. And the effects of those policies can still be felt in the city's African-American communities today. It is in that context that we examine the unrest of April 2015 and the unrest that fell in the city nearly half a century earlier in 1968. Former Congressman Kwasi Fume, a son of Baltimore, witnessed both firsthand. There was a lot of anger in Baltimore, as there was in a lot of American cities in the 1960s. It was the period of the Black Power Movement. People were very much divided over the war in Vietnam. Jack Kennedy had been assassinated earlier that decade, and then his brother, and then Dr. Martin Luther King. There was a lot of strife between people who thought that they had the right to impose their will on others, and others who thought they had the right to protest that. So it's in that context that on April 4th, 1968, when Dr. King was finally pronounced dead that evening, that the community exploded. I was 19 years old. I will remember it forever. We all just kind of came out into the streets that night. And nobody knew what to do. It was sort of like a collective mourning. But the anger that had been pent up in neighborhoods that had been historically segregated bubbled over. And people were angry at the process and really angry about the system. A system that they grew up in, that they and their parents paid taxes in, but a system that continued to find a way to, to segregate and to impose a sort of unofficial Jim Crow. When Freddie Gray died in police custody, that same anger, this time visited to a different generation, took root again. Not because he was like Dr. King, a civil rights leader and a great orator, but because people thought that there was no justice and therefore there should be no peace. And I remember leaving the funeral at my church that day of Freddie Gray, and it reminded me of 1968, April 4th. People were just pouring into the streets in this kind of collective mourning. And there were crips, there were bloods, there were elderly people, there were shop owners, there was a religious community. And what happened after that was all well documented with the uprising that took place. But it was like in 1968, unplanned and very hard to control because it was an expression by many of their anger, their frustration, for their sense of reality, which said to them over and over again in many respects, you really are different. You really are second class. Now, whether that's right or wrong is up for interpretation, but that's how people felt. So that becomes the common denominator of uh, both of those uprisings. And it will take some time, I think, for historians to put it in its proper context. Uh, the real challenge, though, is to make sure there's not a third uprising in Baltimore and other cities over something 20 or 40 years later that is equally as disturbing.
Black Lives Matter addresses more than police violence, which of course happens in a societal context. There's also a demand to recognize other policies and practices that oppress and marginalize black Americans. As media moved to Baltimore in the wake of Freddie Gray's April 2015 death after arrest, we talked about other aspects of that societal context with the Economic Policy Institute's Richard Rothstein. Well, we have a myth in this country that we have what the lawyers call de facto segregation, that we created these neighborhoods like the inner city of Baltimore that are almost all black, that are poor, segregated from mainstream society by accident, either because black people were too poor to move to the suburbs or because there was private prejudice or because there was white flight of people who didn't want to live near blacks. And although some of that is true, the bigger cause, the most important cause of segregation is public policy that was deliberately intended for the first two-thirds of the 20th century to separate black and white families. And segregation uh, was a government policy. It was racially conscious. It was not the, the unintended consequence of benign policies. It was designed by federal, state, and local governments to segregate our communities. And this was true in every metropolitan area in the country. Now, in Baltimore, in the early 20th century, Baltimore actually passed an ordinance defining which blocks blacks could live on and which blocks whites could live on. When that kind of ordinance was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1917, the mayor of Baltimore set up a committee on segregation to make sure that even without the ordinance uh, still being in effect, that housing inspectors, that health inspectors would enforce uh, segregation and if any family uh, in a white neighborhood were to sell to a black family, the housing and health inspectors would make sure that the black family could no longer live there. And this kind of thing went on at local level for many years. Then the federal government played a major role in explicitly segregating neighborhoods in Baltimore and throughout the country. The first civilian public housing program began in the New Deal under the Public Works Administration. It was a New Deal program to create housing for civilian population. And it was segregated. The director of the Public Works Administration uh, in the Franklin Roosevelt Administration established what he called a neighborhood composition rule, which was that public housing uh, could only be established for people of the race in the neighborhood where the public housing was established. In fact, many of the public housing projects were established in integrated neighborhoods. They tore down integrated neighborhoods and created segregated neighborhoods in their place. That's one of the things that happened in St. Louis, for example, that uh, led to the kind of uh, situation we have in Ferguson. That continued. Public housing continued to be segregated throughout the, the 20th century up until the mid-1950s. In 1949, President Truman proposed a massive expansion of uh, public housing programs in this country. At the time, there was still a civilian housing shortage, so public housing was for whites, uh, not just for blacks. And in order to try to defeat his public housing proposal, Republicans in Congress put forward what they called a poison pill amendment. That was an amendment that would require public housing to be integrated. Knowing that the amendment passed, Southern Democrats would then no longer vote for uh, public housing and the entire public housing program would be defeated. So liberal Democrats in the Senate and the House, led by people like Hubert Humphrey, campaigned against the integration amendment because they argued that uh, if the public 
housing was integrated, there would be no public housing at all. And this was true throughout the country. This was not just for the South. And so segregated public housing was created throughout the country. The biggest federal policy, probably, was the policy of the Federal Housing Administration, which financed, starting in the, in the, the early 1940s, builders of uh, subdivisions, mass production builders of places like you're familiar with in Levittown, New York, or Daly City in California, and subdivisions everywhere in between. They financed builders to create subdivisions of single-family homes in the suburbs on condition that they be sold to whites only. That was an explicit condition of the Federal Housing Administration financing of bank loans to developers. So while whites and blacks were of similar uh, incomes, returning war veterans, for example, working-class families, could have afforded to buy into the suburbs, only whites were permitted to do so. Blacks were consigned not only to urban ghettos, but to segregated public housing in urban ghettos. And those are the kinds of policies that uh, resulted in what we see in Baltimore today, what we saw in St. Louis, and what we've seen uh, around the country for the last 50 years. One more thing. In um, 1970, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development of the Nixon administration was a fellow named George Romney, uh, the father of the recent presidential candidate. George Romney understood everything that I've just described to you, as did most people at that time. We've forgotten this history. George Romney said that the federal government had created a white noose around inner-city ghettos. And it was the job of the federal government now to untie that noose. And George Romney began a program which he called Open Communities, in which he denied federal funds to suburbs that refused to desegregate. And one of the first test cases he made of this policy of denying federal funds for sewers and parkland and water projects was to Baltimore County. And he told Baltimore County that it was not going to get any more federal funds for any urban projects unless it repealed its exclusionary zoning ordinance, that is, ordinance that uh, prohibited the construction of multifamily dwellings in the suburbs, unless it accepted public housing with African Americans, uh, and unless it accepted subsidized low-income housing. Baltimore County was one of the first places that he tried to do that. Mm. Eventually, George Romney was reined in by the Nixon administration because there was a white backlash to his desegregation policies, and Romney himself was eventually forced out as, as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and we've had nothing as aggressive in way of desegregation since. So this history is once well known. It was once widely accepted and understood that segregation was not an accident, but it was a purposeful creation of state, federal, and local government. And we've now forgotten that we think that it happened by accident. And when we think it happened by accident, we then um, think there's nothing we can do about it. Whereas if we understood that this was the product of government policy, we would understand that there are government policies that could reverse it. And maybe it should go without saying, but of course the connection between housing ownership and the accumulation of wealth is absolutely critical. So these policies explain even more than where people live. Well, that's correct. I mean, when you concentrate the low-income population in an area, of course, they, they, they become more low-income because they don't have access to jobs. And as you probably know, in the 1950s, uh, jobs began to move from urban areas out to suburbs because African Americans were concentrated 
in a noose, as George Romney said, in central cities. They had no access to the jobs that were being created, so the community became poorer than it was before. We've been speaking with Richard Rothstein of the Economic Policy Institute. You can find his work on their site. It's epi.org. Richard Rothstein, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Segregation, separation, murderation, bad situation, confusion, in a few nation, that's what Babylon can. Yeah, to divide us, so be conscious, they no like us, so be cautious, read the signs and between the lines. Take care of yourself, mankind, because they might try to feed for what us. Like automobile, them a fig up a nose. But I you know you tell them, say fig up a nose. Run where boy, I know try to make me nervous and bust. One of the most profound movements and one of the first real social movement in American history was all about slavery. And that's labor. And it was about creating a different kind of democracy, different kind of way of thinking about the economy. And I think these battles aren't over. The African-American portion of American wealth as a whole is 3% today. And the last time it was 3% was in 1868, three years after slavery. African-Americans going back to before the Civil War uh, and the earliest African-American spokespersons and writers and, and leaders like Frederick Douglass and others argued that the fundamental feature of the American economy was dehumanization. And they also argued that you can't have a democratic constitution and an economic system that degrades and exploits people. Many of the radical Republicans who fought for the Civil War and in the Civil War believed the same thing. I think the true intent of the 13th Amendment wasn't just to eliminate chattel slavery, it was to eliminate all forms of economic oppression and create what we would now call living wages for everybody. I think that was the true intent. But these things were overthrown. After the Civil War, there was a counter-revolution, Lincoln's assassination, the destruction of Reconstruction. We got segregation, which wasn't just about making white people feel superior, it was about a cheap labor force, which persisted. The 1963 March on Washington, where everyone sees Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Well, King wasn't head of that march. A. Philip Randolph was the first black trade union president. The demand of the march was for jobs and freedom. Jobs came even before freedom. That sort of dream of a new kind of economy was tightly connected with thinking about voting rights and a new kind of politics. And when African Americans said we refuse to work as basically semi-slave laborers with no rights and no voting rights and no protections, and my generation said we're not going to do that work that our parents did, then employers started bringing undocumented immigrants into the country to work with no rights and no protections. And when the government said 
well, what are we going to do with all these young folks like me who don't want to do this kind of semi-slave work? They didn't reform the economy. They said, let's lock them up. And we got mass incarceration. And so I think all of these things are related to our history. All of these things are part of the challenge of changing the system. And the system connects these things. For generations, it's been an article of faith among black people that education is the path to success, not just for the individual, but for the black community as a whole. That's never been entirely true, which is why W.E.B. Du Bois was the first black person to get a Ph.D. from Harvard, but was not allowed to teach there, and why black high schools in Washington, D.C. during Jim Crow were full of teachers with doctorates who couldn't find steady employment elsewhere. The notion that college is the great equalizer in American society may have some validity for whites and Asian Americans, but for Hispanics and blacks, the situation is much more complicated. A new study by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis finds that the wealth of black families headed by college graduates diminished dramatically between 1992 and 2013. There were three recessions over that time period, but despite the downturns, the median net worth or wealth of white households headed by a college graduate increased by 86%. For Asian college families, the rise in net worth was even more dramatic. Over the two decades, their wealth went up nearly 90%. But black families in which the head of household held a college degree saw their net worth drop by more than half, 56% when adjusted for inflation. In other words, three recessions in 20 years didn't stop whites and Asian American college graduates from steadily increasing their family wealth, while black college families saw a steady erosion of their economic status. Hispanic households headed by college graduates lost a catastrophic 72% of their wealth in the last recession alone, largely because they were even more heavily invested in housing than their black counterparts. Indeed, black college graduate households lost a lot more during the recessions than black families headed by people without college degrees, whose wealth declined less than 4%. But, of course, that's largely because most black people don't have much wealth to lose. After the last recession, black median household wealth shrank to one-twentieth that of white families. Black college households, along with their Hispanic peers, sank a lot more of their money into the family home, where much of it disappeared in the Great Recession. The homes of white college graduates declined in value by only 25% during the economic meltdown. But black and Hispanic college graduates' homes lost about half their value. The authors of the study conclude that the black and Hispanic college families fared so badly during the recessions because they were deeper in debt, both on their houses and their college educations. 
without the benefit of affluent relatives, and in a job market rife with racism, their college degrees provided little protection from economic downturns. The study states the obvious, that higher education alone cannot level the playing field. But a report by the Federal Reserve Bank cannot tell the real truth that it is statistically impossible for blacks under the current system to ever achieve economic parity with whites, no matter what their educations. What's needed is a fundamental transformation of society, a revolution. Let that be a lesson to you. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. Yes, I was burned, but I called it a lesson In this day and age, pretty much everyone needs a website for one thing or another. Sometimes it's hard to know if a thing or a person even exists unless they have a website. So lucky for all of us, there's Squarespace. Their intuitive and easy-to-use tools make it easy to create a site that looks professionally designed regardless of your skill level. No coding required. You could struggle and sweat trying to figure out how to build the site you need on your own. You could pay thousands to have someone else do it for you. Or you could try Squarespace at an astonishingly reasonable monthly rate that includes all the tools you need and 24-7 customer support. You can start a free trial with no credit card required, and then if you decide to sign up for a year, they'll throw in a free domain for your new site. Plus, if you make sure to use the offer code LEFT at checkout, you'll get 10% off your entire first year and support the show at the same time, just as Squarespace has been a supporter of ours for a long time, which we appreciate. Squarespace, you should. Income is the money that flows to you. It's your weekly check, it's your monthly salary payment, whatever it is. The money that comes to you every so often. Wealth is different. Wealth is the value of whatever it is you own. It's not coming to you, it's already yours. It's the value you have. And economists keep a statistic called your net worth. And this is a measurement of your wealth. That's really what it means. It counts up your assets, your home, your car, your bank account, stocks and bonds if you have them, and so on. And it subtracts from that your debts. So the end result is kind of what is the wealth left that is actually yours net of or including the debts and subtracted away from it. So it's really what you have. And I wanted to make sure that we all understood how wealth is distributed in the United States. And before I go over the numbers with you, let me drive home a couple of points about it. How you feel about your life, how you feel about the economic conditions of your life, are shaped by the income that's coming to you week by week, month by month, but also by whatever wealth you have. So to be simple, if you don't have much income, that could be a problem unless you have a lot of wealth. And even if you have a nice income flow, if you have no wealth, what happens if you get sick? What happens if you get divorced? What happens if you lose your job? What happens if the economy goes south, etc.? So wealth 
is something as important in its way as is income. We've talked often, and I'm sure many of you know, that the income gap between rich and poor has gotten dramatically wider over the last 30 to 40 years. Dramatically, the gap between rich and poor. The middle class is in terrible trouble because it either has dropped out of the middle or that middle has become more and more pinched. Whereas the folks in the top 10% and even more those in the top 5% and even more the famous 1%, they've been doing real well in terms of the flow, the income they get. But I want now to talk about wealth, not income. What you own, the value of what you have minus the debts that you owe. Okay, so let's begin. The median wealth of Americans. So median again means 50% had more, 50% had less. Median wealth, net worth of the American household in 2000 and seven was $135,000. The wealth, 50% of Americans had less than that. Right? 50% had more. Median wealth of Americans. In 2013, so six years later, 2007, before the crisis hits, 2013, today, or last year, for which we have numbers. The median wealth of Americans dropped from that 135000 in 2007 to 82000 in 2013. That is a staggering drop. No recovery at all. For example, between 2010 and 2013, those are the last three years during which we were told we have a recovery, the wealth of Americans, the median wealth, didn't change at all. It was 82,000 in 2010, it's 82,000 in 2013. And those 82s in 2010 and 13 are way below what it was in 2007. So, There's no recovery. There is a collapse, a major historic drop in the median wealth of the American family. But if you think that's remarkable, well, I got news for you. Because what's even more remarkable is the fact that if you break down American families and you divide them into white black and Hispanic, the way the government does, uh, you get even more statistical amazing results. And by the way, I use here the research of something called the Pew, P-E-W, Charitable Trust. They are a source of excellent, excellent statistical research. And they have a report on wealth inequality, dated December 12th of 2014. If you have the time uh, to check out, you can get it on the Internet. Kochar and Fry are the two authors, uh, Rakesh Kochar and Richard Fry. 
December 12th, Wealth Inequality is the title, Pew Charitable Trusts, P-E-W. Okay. White, the white family wealth dropped by 30% or more than. Black dropped by 40%. Hispanic dropped by 40%. In other words, the gap between rich and poor over the last years of this crisis has gotten worse. This is the important message I want to get to you. But the numbers are staggering. The net worth, the net worth of a black household in the United States, median, so 50% of African American families did better, 50% did worse. That's what median means. The ratio of white to black in 2007 was 10 to 1. In other words, if the median white family had a hundred thousand dollars, it was more than that, but just for numerical sense, then the median black family had ten thousand. I want the people to understand ten to one. In 2013, the relationship between white and black, both of which had deteriorated, but the black much more, was thirteen to one. And with Hispanics, the story is the same. From 8 to 1, white to Hispanic, to 10 to 1, white to Hispanic. In other words, everyone in America lost wealth dramatically. Huge numbers. A quarter, a third, almost half of your wealth gone in five years, even if it took you 20 to build it up. But not only did everybody's wealth shrink, But the gap between white Americans on the one hand and black and Hispanic Americans on the other, African American and Hispanic families, got worse. And here's the punchline, if indeed that's the word. Are we really surprised when we put white African American and Hispanic American families under this kind of pressure, removing in a short number of years a massive proportion of their wealth, whether that wealth be modest or even substantial. Everybody's under the gun. Everybody's wealth has shrunk. Everybody has less as the Rady Day Fund to handle life's changes, life's emergencies, life's crises. Of course, everybody's under pressure. But if on top of it, you widen the gap between the white part of America, which is shrinking as a portion of our population, and the African-American and Hispanic, which is increasing as a proportion, you have a recipe for social conflict, social tension, social envy, social bitterness. Ferguson, Mr. Garner in New York, all of them. These are symptoms of an economic system that has unloaded its negativity on the United States, Western Europe, and Japan in a stunning and unrelenting way. 
My only conclusion to offer you is, don't turn a blind eye to the economics of what's going on. The recovery affects a tiny sliver at the top. If you take a look at the top 10% of the people, their net worth has gone up. Because they're at the top. They're not affected by the median, the midpoint. That's got nothing to do with them. Their net worth has gone up dramatically. They've done well. They're the ones talking about the recovery because they're the ones who own the media. They're the ones who own the big companies. They're the ones who are collecting the big bonuses. Of course, there's a recovery for them. Their only mistake is to imagine and then to say publicly that the recovery they experience is a recovery for the economy as a whole. That's not true. There's no subtlety here. There's no nuance. It's just not true. That's why the numbers on wealth, the collapse of wealth for everybody, the vast majority, except for those at the top, the collapse of wealth and the growing divide between whites on the one hand and African American and Hispanic Americans on the other, it's unjust, it's unfair, and it provokes social conflict that is dangerous for everyone. We can't ask the police to solve this problem. They have neither the tools, nor the training, nor the understanding to do it. And to throw them into these situations is a recipe for disaster. This is a fundamental economic problem in large part. It's not all there is to it, but it's a major part. And if you don't deal with the economic inequality and the fact of the crisis of capitalism and its impact, you are not dealing with a major part of the problem which doesn't suggest that the solution is going to work, does it? The South politician preaches to the poor white man You got more than the blacks don't complain You're better than them, you've been born with white skin, they explain And the Negro's name is used, it is plain For the politician's gain as he rises to fame And the poor white remains On the caboose of the train But it ain't him to blame He's only a pawn in their game Black Workers' Centers have been meeting nationally to deepen their ties and strengthen their political power. In a sane world, their agenda would be our national agenda, namely to build assets and access to resources for the least wealthy Americans. After all, how strong do we want 21st century America to be? By 2040, we'll be a majority-minority nation, so-called, meaning the majority of us will be living firmly on the wrong side of the racial wealth gap, less wealthy, less secure, and more isolated. What difference does wealth make? Well, the Federal Reserve gets at that question when, in their annual survey of consumer finances, they ask people how they would handle a $400 emergency. 
Last year, fully 47% of respondents said they wouldn't be able to cover it or only by selling something or borrowing money from somebody else. That's wealth. The little extra beyond your income was coming in and going out that helps you cover a crisis, let alone invest in the future. Almost half of all Americans, the Fed found, don't have it. Add race to the picture, and it's even more disturbing. The Fed reports that the racial wealth gaps barely budged over the last 25 years, except to get bigger after the Great Recession. Between 2007 and 2013, net worth for white families rose from roughly five to roughly seven times that of black families. In absolute terms, that means net wealth stands at 134000 for white families and just 11000 for black. While incomes were only between one and two times greater for whites than for blacks, assets, all that wealth, was roughly five times as great for those with bachelor's degrees. And the inequality doesn't stop there. The Fed also asked about inheritances, that lump sum that can help families accrue wealth. 23% of white families compared to just 11% of black have ever received an inheritance. Only 6% of blacks expect ever to inherit wealth, as opposed to 19% of whites. The numbers for Hispanics are even lower. It's a lot of numbers, I know, but suffice to say, today the top 10% of white families hold 90% of the nation's total wealth, while black families hold a mere 2.7%. What the black worker centers in Los Angeles and Baltimore and Chicago are doing, namely doubling down on securing wages, expanding, expanding access to contracts and capital, and exploring creative ways to build assets for the black working class, with or without, but especially with a non-white future looming, that's actually what we should be doing as a nation. Listen up. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, narrowing the racial wealth gap. Last week, the United Nations Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent reported on their tour of Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Jackson, Mississippi, Chicago, and New York City. They determined what people of color and social justice advocates already know. African Americans continue to face inequality, barriers to education and health care, and death at the hands of the state. Common Dreams reported that the five-member working group says they are, quote, extremely concerned about the human rights situation of African Americans, unquote, and determined that they deserve reparatory justice. The human rights advocate leading the working group is quoted as saying, quote, Despite substantial changes since the end of the enforcement of Jim Crow and the fight for civil rights, ideology ensuring the domination of one group over another continues to negatively impact the civil, political, economic, social, cultural, and environmental rights of African Americans today, unquote. 
Obviously, there's no easy policy fix, law, or organizational plan that can move us in the right direction by itself, but a new plan out from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, reported on at Color Lines, looks like a great place to start. The program, Investing in Tomorrow, Helping Families Build Savings and Assets, seeks to close the gap between median net worth for white households and households of color. Currently, white households have more than 10 times the assets of their black and Latino peers, and 47% of adults do not have enough savings to cover a $400 emergency, leaving them constantly vulnerable. At AECF.org, the Annie E. Casey Foundation provides ways to get involved with helping those in your community who need access to helpful services, advocating with your state-level legislators on implementing these policies, and, of course, sharing the well-designed graphics and information on social media to raise awareness and put pressure on candidates and legislators. The four recommendations of the Investing in Tomorrow initiative are, one, raise asset limits for public benefit programs, two, provide portable safe accounts for retirement and emergency savings, three, expand access to home ownership, and four, create savings accounts that help build wealth from birth. The top one, raising the asset limits for public benefit programs, is a great action item to raise with candidates and legislators because it doesn't require any new infrastructure and has very simple talking points. Our social media and activism director here at Best of the Left, Katie Kalbusik, actually found out the hard way about this specific policy. People utilizing public programs like food stamps are actually penalized if they own literally anything, a car, a house, a computer, necessities of life, and they're expected to drain any savings they have, any cash on hand, get rid of all their possessions that they might have before qualifying for assistance. Katie wrote about her experience, and since writing about it, she's heard from people all over the country who ended up in a poverty cycle because they could never set anything aside to change their long-term circumstances without forfeiting eligibility to the programs that are supposedly there to help people get on their feet. So we've actually ended up creating the cycle of dependence that the right wing rails against, not because assistance makes people lazy, but because we don't allow people to rebuild, allowing people who experience losses like job layoffs to get assistance without having to move and sell assets that are more expensive in the long run to have to replace than to simply keep, as well as reducing the barriers to initially qualifying would go a long way to making our safety net safe and empowering people, especially those who face systemic discrimination and injustice. Click on the orange Investing in Tomorrow tab at acef.org to get involved in your state and use openstates.org to find and contact your state reps about implementing some or all of the Annie E. Casey Foundation's policy recommendations. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. If narrowing the racial wealth gap and making our safety net more secure matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about investing in tomorrow via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration, the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. 
Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? I'm not going after the low-hanging fruit of racism because lo the low-hanging fruit of racism, even though it directly affects us in a very negative way, we've been going after that for 50, 60, 70, 100 years. We've been fighting against that for so long. But it dawned on me that racism and white supremacy is merely a tool. It is just a symptom. It is a side effect of the real sickness. And the real sickness is the status quo economically and politically. The people who want to maintain political and economic control over the United States and not, 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 not just, let me get more specifically. They want to maintain the control over government resources. They don't want to see a dime going to create the general welfare. They want to see every penny going to corporate welfare and defense contractors and they want to make sure that the government that the wealth that they extract from all 350 million people in this nation in one form or another every I don't care I don't care if you're living in poverty and never paid income taxes you have paid another type of tax they want to make sure that every dime that is extracted from the United States of America goes to corporate welfare and governmental contracts and goes to defense contractors. That's that is their sole purpose in life. It is always it has always been about money. And racism is simply a convenient tool to keep poor. Oh, I think I just blew out my microphone. It is a convenient tool to keep poor white people turning and looking at black people and 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 Muslims and Arabic people and uh, and looking at um, um, Asians, anyone who's not white, looking at them as if they were the problem. It keeps them looking at immigrants and saying immigrants are the reasons we can't get jobs. When actuality, no, the reason you can't get a job is because your particular skill set is not conducive to the globalized economy that we have. And they are not going to give you retraining, nor are they going to revolutionize the education system because that costs money. They're not going to prepare your children to be prepared for the globalized economy. They, they are, you have been edged out of a job by the very people that you support on a regular basis. And it's not just Republicans. Uh, it, there are plenty. Matter of fact, President Obama right now is playing into this hand of, of neoliberal capitalism and allowing the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, to become a, a part of his legacy that is going to exasperate the problem even more. It is the status quo that the people who simply want to maintain economic control and want to maintain the, redistribu the, the redistribution of wealth going up. How do I know this? Good question. I'm glad you asked. I look at Martin Luther King. All intents and purposes, Martin Luther King was their boy, you know, because he was able to convey a message that was uh, that kept the that kept the nation from exploding into another civil war. Right. So he was loved by black people, but he was loved by the people in power. Up until his message changed from being about racial equality to economic equality of opportunity. Once King started talking about 
economic equality of opportunity. Once King starts talking about the redistribution of wealth that happens, that goes up, but never comes down. No sooner than King started talking about that, they killed him. They didn't kill him over his speech of I have a dream. Hell, they quote his speech. They, they use his name in vain. They, they, they love King now that he's dead. But as soon as King started talking about the economic disparities and the need for poor white people to get together with poor black people and for us to demand, literally, this was his last, his, it, he didn't even deliver the speech. It was an economic bill of rights. There's a draft right now. Um, you can get links on my site. Go read the economic bill of rights. He did not even get a chance to deliver that speech. And so I'm saying all this to say that it is not simply about how racist America is. It's the question of why is America so racist? America's not racist just because they look at dark-skinned people and be like, oh, I hate them. No, America is racist because they realize that there's a segment of our society that they can blind that they can put, and this is this is the modern racism. You know, we can go back generation by generation, and you can see how it morphed, how it morphed to be uh, to a particular end. Racism has always had a particular end. Racism is not the end; it is the means to the end. And so, I'm sorry if I don't get caught up and stuck right at racism. I recognize it. I talk out about it. I speak out about it. I write about it. I blog about it. I make videos about it, and to the point where a lot of my listeners are like, ugh. Another racism story. But I don't stop there because racism and white supremacy has always been, as Tanisha Coates said, said it has always been about extracting wealth. It has always been has been about pushing wealth up to the top by keeping a segment of our society who is equally affected by the negative consequences of our economic structure. Simply put, poor people who are poor, and the reason they are poor is because the innate structure, um, the, the fact that poverty is systemic to capitalism without any governmental interaction. These people who are poor because of the system, the only way they can keep them from looking around and saying, wait a minute, something's wrong with this system. The only way they can keep them from doing that is by giving them someone a scapegoat to hate. And that is why racism is is in America. That's why it's here. It's not here simply because they just look at our skin. They've always looked at our skin and they hated us. No, they they, they didn't come to the West Coast of Africa and take and take us. Uh, and, and they didn't take us because they just didn't like us. They took us for an economic end. And once that was over, they didn't they didn't instu institute Jim Crow just just because they didn't like us. I'm sure you had some assholes who just didn't like us for, you know, the poor people, basically the poor, the poor white people. They're, they're the ones, the, the poor racist white people in the South predominantly. And you find them in the North um, <laughs> more and more and more. But the poor white people in the South that um, that 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 are blind to the real reasons they are poor. They can consistently be fed red meat, the red meat of racism. And always turn a blind eye. But the people at the top who's doing the feeding, that's the real enemy. We're divided because of hatred. And they knew it. They know it. Every generation passes it down. 
Racism is a means to an end. Racism has never been the end. The end is economic wealth being distributed to the top 1%. We just heard clips featuring Decode DC on The Great Migration, All In with Chris Hayes on The History of Baltimore, Counterspin also discussed the roots of racial segregation in Baltimore, The Next System Project had a short narrated piece about the connections between civil and economic rights, The Black Agenda Report talked about the racial disparity in wealth lost during the last few recessions, Richard Wolf on Economic Update also broke down the legacy of racial economic inequality, Laura Flanders shined a light on the problem as well well as pointed in the direction we should be headed. Our activism for today is from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, working to narrow the racial wealth gap. And finally, we just heard from Benjamin Dixon point out that racism and economics have always been connected at the hip in this country. Keeping people poor and keeping them racist has gone hand in hand since before our founding. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Philly. I'm calling about the most recent episode on income inequality, and I particularly wanted to comment on the last segment by Professor Wolf, where he compared the U.S. to other OECD countries. And in a lot of ways, the U.S. tended to come in second on measures of inequality, and we were second behind Israel in most of those cases. And Professor Wolf was chalking up Israel's inequality to the fact that it's essentially two cultures, or perhaps you would say two nations, existing side by side in one country. And I think it's pretty clear, based on a lot of the other episodes you've had recently, and you know, with the ascendance of things like Black Lives Matter, that the reason the U.S. continues to be such an outlier among its peer nations is also because we are two nations or more within one country, and we refuse to come to grips with that. Our segregation is no longer legally sanctioned, but that doesn't keep us from being a de facto segregated country, which shows up everywhere from schooling to housing patterns to the workplace, you name it. It even comes down to, I would say, our entertainment. It's one thing I've noticed living in a city like Philly where the majority, well, I'm sorry, there is no majority ethnic group, but the largest ethnic group is African American. And I see advertising for movies, TV, and so on that I'm sure my parents who live in central New Jersey have never heard of and never see it existing. So... I really think that until we really start to confront some of these issues around race and how that feeds into structural inequality, we're never going to meet even our closest peer nations in the Anglophone world, Canada, the UK, Australia, never mind what are considered the gold standards of the Scandinavian countries. Anyway, thanks for running the show and stay awesome. Hey, Jay. This is Colby in uh, Portland, Oregon. Just finished listening to the show on uh, economics and wealth inequality. And, uh, you know, I had to call in because uh, the voicemails at the end of it were 
people sounding very reasonable, saying very rational things about, you know, uh, we can just regulate capitalism a little bit and we can have it be a lot better and that's all well and good, that's totally right. But I wanted to just call in to be a counterbalance to that because I think we're kind of suffering from the Overton window shifting so far to the right. One of, one of the voicemails said that, you know, nobody's saying that we want to take capitalism out on the street and beat it over the head with a tire iron or something to that extent. I'm here to say, no, I do want to do that to capitalism. I don't believe in capitalism. I believe in syndicalism, you know, with the, the big three options as far as the economic system, socialism being state-running economics, free market, laissez-faire stuff being just market-run economics, and syndicalism being worker-run economics. When we say we want to have the workers be able to vote to decide how their business runs, we are supporters of unions and big, strong unions. These are aspects of syndicalism. We're saying we want a more syndicalist, at least mix, in our economic function instead of just being a free market economic system. So, no, I'm not in favor of the capitalist free market system. I'm in favor of the syndicalist system. I wouldn't mind if the free market capitalist system got drug out into the street a little bit. I'm okay with that. And I don't want us to fall into the trap of trying to be reasonable people and discussing it with others, like trying to present a palpable argument to the general public, the more conservative people among us, to then shift what we're asking to be a less extreme version of capitalism. We should be asking for syndicalism. We shouldn't give up all this initial ground and compromise what we're asking for. We should be very reasonable and willing to compromise to a better form of capitalism because we understand here in America it's going to be hard enough just to move to that. But we shouldn't give up the framing. That's something we've been struggling with in the recent years, and I'm sure everybody listening to this is aware of. So I think we need to be conscientious of that, especially in voicemail sections like this where we're talking to other lefties like ourselves. We're not really appealing to general public. If you're at Thanksgiving or Christmas, yeah, we should present the arguments in the uh, voicemail section for the last episode. But here, we should be talking about syndicalism. I want you guys to bring knowledge to me about syndicalism that I'm not aware of yet. I want to learn better what we should be asking for so I can defend it. I don't want to sit around being reasonable with you guys here. <laughs> Which I appreciate you all being, but Overton window and whatnot. Sorry, I'm rambling. I'll, I'll call it. Thanks for the show, Jay. Great stuff as usual. Hi, this is Jordan from Salt Lake City. Uh, first time caller on your show. So what you were mentioning at the end of your inequality one about the product life cycle, that was a very interesting thought. It made me think about Citizen Coke, if you've read that book, the idea of Coca-Cola capitalism. When Coca-Cola was first, when they were coming into that, because, you know, you had to return the Coke bottle so that they could dispose of it. But then they essentially lobbied the government to the point where we created a recycling program so that what they did was they externalized the cost from themselves and put it onto the taxpayers at large. And so the idea of reinstating this to 
slow down, and we all know about how Coca-Cola has fueled climate change through the overuse of water and such things. Instituting a rule to slow down climate change and uh, inequality with these rules to represent the true value of the idea, uh, item was a great idea. As well, uh, one of your callers mentioned was going into how is uh, capitalism essentially at uh, odds with the idea of essentially what he seemed to be describing a worker co-op where you allow workers to have such a stake in the company. Will they simply run roughshod over the company, give themselves million-dollar bonuses? Well, worker co-ops exist, and we haven't seen the ones that exist. We've seen that when we give workers a stake in the company, they actually tend to act very responsibly. What they do is they don't allow themselves to be screwed over. But when we have CEOs with all kinds of power in the company, we do see them give themselves these outrageous bonuses for poor performance. So it's kind of funny to say, oh, that they're going to do this when the CEOs do it themselves. So I thought that was an interesting kind of a point on how it's kind of a non-issue in that way. As well uh, with the idea of inequality with uh so what all reminded me of this Angerman and Sokoloff article from about 2002 where they mentioned that inequality that happens early on in a society, elites tend to build structures that keep it firmly in place. And, you know, you see that in like oil countries where the lower classes have a hard time getting up because the, they built institutions that keep it the way it is. Uh, I would argue that it's happening right now. So we see it with corporatism, with these, uh, the Coca-Cola capitalism I mentioned before, where the rich keep getting richer, and they're also firmly entrenching themselves. You know, Citizens United, they're, allowed, they're to the point where money has such undue influence over the system. I would argue that inequality is inherently a danger because the elites do, the people who benefit from it do put in place systems to keep it that way, to make it harder to for other people to get up. So that would be my answer to Wade's question. Anyways, uh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I have to say, thank goodness for Erin sending in her message. Uh, it just came in, I think, last night and played it on the voicemails today. And besides it being a great message, it was the only one I've received in the past four or five days that wasn't from a white guy. And don't get me wrong, all those white guys had plenty of good things to say, but I just had this sneaking suspicion that it would be valuable to hear some comments about the structural economic injustices from someone other than the group of people who are usually the biggest beneficiaries of those injustices and inequalities. You know what I mean? So take from that what you will, and if you have anything to add to this conversation, I would love to hear from you. The number again, 202-999-3991. I'm keeping it short today, so that is going to be it. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, 
including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder